guest today is David Schleicher from Yale. David is an expert in election law and local government and land use law and many other things besides, and also the host of the excellent podcast, Digging a Hole. Um, so we're grateful you can come to, to uh, our somewhat less professional, I have to admit, podcast but especially because we wanted to talk to him about his forthcoming book, which, David, you can correct me, but I think is out in less than two weeks now, called uh, In a Bad State, Responding to State and Local Government Budget Crises, which is about, well, pretty much what it says on the tin, I think. Um, And I, I have to confess, I'm a little bit embarrassed since I think of state and local debt crises as quite closely parallel to sovereign debt crises, and yet they implicate all these bodies of law from bankruptcy law to uh, state and local government law that I really don't know anything about. And so, David, I'm happy you can come here to hopefully clarify some things for me uh, and uh, to tell us all about your your new book. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited. I'm a big fan of the podcast, um, uh, and um, I'm uh, I'm thrilled to be here. So maybe we can start with a bit of overview about the book. I mean, the, it does lots of things, but to my mind, two of the most central are that it gives this sweeping historical overview of state and local budget crises, and then it also explains the trade-offs. You, I think, refer to this as the the trilemma, but the the trade-offs involved in any federal response to those crises. And so I'm hoping you can start maybe by talking a little bit about the motivations for the book and also maybe give us the you know, the elevator pitch about the book. Yeah. So the motivation, I mean, there's obviously personal motivations or like explanations for why I got to this particular project, um, which I'm happy to talk about if you want. Um, uh, but the uh, the kind of broader story is that uh, debt crate, state and local debt crises have been a feature of American history since the beginning. So one of our first major political battles was over uh, whether the federal government should assume state debts uh, for those of you who are fans of the musical Hamilton, this is the the fight at the um, in cabinet battle number one um, in uh, the musical. Um, and the question was: state and local governments had uh, debt crises, a uh, debt debt following the Revolutionary War, and there's a question about how the federal government should respond to this. And over the course of American history, and particularly in the 19th century, although to a lesser degree in the 20th century and 21st century, um, well, maybe coming a revival in the 21st century, the question of how to how to how to address um as a policy matter state and local excessive state and local debt and also notably and we'll get to in a minute why do we might want to encourage state and local debt in kind of other times um was a major running political dispute for the courts of American history. so I thought telling a history of it um would help um uh situate our modern debates about state and local debt crises. So we've had a number that are extremely prominent. So from Detroit uh, recently to Puerto Rico, to um, uh, whatever was happening during COVID with state and local budgets and the responding federal aid that was running. It's been a subject of some political contestation um, in recent years. And so the debates I find you know, when we had the debates, particularly in the last couple of years uh, during the COVID period, were pretty, um, 
unsatisfying, I thought, because um, they didn't really get at the full option set, the kind of set of options that uh, politicians had, uh, policymakers had, and the politicians who were talking about it kind of seemed to be talking past one another. And so I thought that providing a scope and a model could help both like explain or maybe create some uh, yeah, create, create better conversation around these questions, but also open up some different policy uh, options for officials. So what's the book about? What's the central claim of the book? What's the trilemma? So because this is a sovereign debt podcast, um, many of you will be familiar with the famous Mundell Fleming trilemma. And this is modeled on that in structure. And the idea is that when the federal government sees a state and local government or big, big local government facing a fiscal crisis, it has um, three things it would like to avoid, but it can't avoid all three. And so the three things it wants to avoid are like really, really harsh, harsh austerity measures, uh, debt, state and local debt crises almost always happen during recessions, and uh, state and local budgets are famously pro-cyclical. So if they're making really, really severe cuts during recession, it's going to be really, really bad for the economy. So that's bad. They also want to avoid the moral hazard that's associated with bailouts. So we'll get to that in a minute. But the idea is they might want to avoid jurisdictions thinking they've got a free hand in um uh, future fiscal decisions because the federal government will always come to their aid. And the final thing they want to avoid are defaults, because defaults will limit future borrowing by states and cities. And the U.S. government has always relied on states and cities to build almost all infrastructure and make almost all uh, investments. The old joke is the federal government is a uh, insurance company with an army. Um, uh, but actually, if you touch it or feel it or anything, and it's a, and it's a public uh, public service in America, it's provided by a state and local government. And so it's very important that state and local governments are able to borrow in order to do so, and defaults may limit the ability of either the defaulting jurisdiction or other jurisdictions for being able to borrow. And so when a Detroit happens or a Puerto Rico happens, whatever, um, the there are three types of policy responses, but none of them kind of avoid all three of these problems. So if you offer a bailout, you can avoid defaults uh, if the bailout's big enough, and you can avoid austerity, at least to some extent, but you create the risk of moral hazard. Um, so if you encourage austerity, that is to say you sharply uh, maybe override sovereign immunity or limit sovereign immunity in certain ways, um, uh, but don't offer bailouts. And so the jurisdiction really has to dig deep to make it pay, dig deeper than it could possibly imagine, and sometimes even violating some of its uh, deep legal commitments. Then you avoid moral hazard and avoid um, and avoid uh, the problems of defaults, but you uh, create uh, economic crisis. And if you have default and if you uh, encourage defaults, well, you avoid you kind of avoid uh, the other two problems, but you create uh, the problem of kind of limits on future lending and borrowing. And so the main, main analytical point of the book is that a policymaker is faced with a really tough set of choices. You can't get everything. Um, and they, as a result, the U.S. government has kind of cycled through these different responses at different branches of the United, of federal government have cycled through these responses over the years. So that's like the main analytical point of the book. I can get into the reformy bits later, but that's the main, the main, the main analytical point in the book. So, David, welcome to our little podcast. And I, I, I'm going to ask two questions, probably because of the trauma you have created in my head. 
by bringing up Mundell Fleming that I, <laughs> I should know, but I, I have this distinct, horrible memory of it from graduate school about this complicated model that I didn't understand. And then they asked me on my exam and I, I didn't understand it there either. And it's probably part of the reason I'm in law school. So <laughs> I didn't even realize our podcast was talking about Mundell Fleming and we would, we would have had a restriction on your talking about it. Uh, but, but you brought it up, but, but to get, get to a, a couple of things that you said and uh, set up the book really nicely. I have a sense that a lot of the things that you're talking about are particularly relevant today with rising interest rates, very high debt loads that local governments have incurred as a result of COVID, either some combination of easy money that was given to them and perhaps uh, local needs during the COVID crisis. And the second question has to do with the lessons we have learned in the sovereign debt world, where I am dramatically oversimplifying, but I will do so because I know you know the sovereign debt world quite well as in addition to knowing pretty much everything else. And that is that our traditional views about the costs of default seem to have overestimated how quickly debtors can come back to the market. They they seem current research seems to say they come back a lot faster than we thought, and moral hazard seems to be seems to have been overestimated, at least in economic models, quite a bit. So I just, I don't have a good sense of whether those uh, empirical facts that we know from the sovereign debt world uh, impact the local government world, or this is a completely different universe there. So sorry for popping up, putting two questions that may not even be related. It's great. So first off, I, the first one is, the, is this relevant today or is this particularly relevant today? And the answer is yes and no. So coming in or at the beginning of the COVID crisis, we had a moment when it really seemed like a lot of jurisdictions were on the edge of default, that we looked like we're coming on a really, really, really big recession, which in uh, the state and local context is associated with falling revenues. They have to keep balanced budgets for both legal and economic reasons. Um, and the result was that they're like, I've falling revenues and increased needs. And that created a really, really, really big problem, particularly for some certain types of jurisdictions, like say transportation agencies that had lost all of their riders. And that was a major source of revenue. Um, the federal government's response inside my thing was, it was like, we're gonna not worry about moral hazard and give state and local governments an extraordinary amount of aid. And so as a result, state and local budgets, maybe the exception of some trans agencies are pretty flush right this second. But they have this kind of the problems they came into the crisis with um, are uh, remaining. And there's some evidence of some of the type of moral hazard I'm talking about here, which is a little distinct from some of the concerns in the sovereign debt world, um, being real, that jurisdictions are uh, a some jurisdictions are being very careful, but other ones are doing what I call playing Brewster's millions with the money. Like the federal government dropped a bunch of money. This is great. Let's, you know, we have to spend it within a week. 
Um, and so it's right now is a pretty opportune time to think about what our policies will be in the next crisis, I think. Um, now, how should we think about defaults in the municipal world and how that what we learn about uh, from the sovereign debt world? Um, it's a great question. Um, so to start, when you all talk about moral hazard, you're mostly talking about the moral hazard of default itself. And I'm that's not what I'm talking about when I'm talking about moral hazard here. I'm talking about the moral hazard of federal government bailout. Um, I'm, so I'm breaking apart those two things. And so the moral hazard questions are a little distinct. But the question of what is the punishment for defaulting is something we don't know that much about in the recent municipal world, because munis don't default very often. The default rate is extraordinarily small on munis, uh, perhaps too small. Um, uh, but uh, there is evidence from uh, previous periods that there, there was some substantial punishment and that it was pretty understood to be pretty similar in kind, that is to say, bad, but not the worst thing in the world in other previous periods. So um, when um, uh, a bunch of states defaulted in the 1840s, there was a real limitations on lending for a period of time um, to them. And then when, and something you've written about, when Southern states defaulted in the post reconstruction era, they couldn't sell their bonds on New York and Chicago markets for a large number of years. And there's even a really fascinating sovereign interlude, which is that um, the when uh, uh, the US sought to enforce loans they'd offered against Britain in uh, after the First World War, Britain responded by saying the amount that we owe you should be offset by the amount of defaults that US states have made to British investors in the 1840s and the 1870s. That argument wasn't availing, but it's a kind of a really fascinating little history. Um, so default, do defaults, like how, how badly are they punished in, this, in the municipal context is we have fewer of them than we have in the sovereign context. And we particularly have fewer of them recently. In the earlier periods, we have a lot, we had a lot of municipal defaults in the, uh, particularly in the late 19th century and then in before the Great Depression um, or during the Great Depression. Um, and we had a bunch of state defaults in the 19th century. I sometimes jokingly call Arkansas, the state of Arkansas, the American Argentina because it defaults three times from 1840 to 1930. Doesn't put it in class with Argentina, but it's, you know, uh, um, I think it's funny because uh, the idea of comparing Arkansas and Argentina is uh, a challenging comparison in other contexts. So um, the punishment for default is um, uh, is a something that we don't know too much about. Um, it is a real threat, and surely it is the case that jurisdictions who default find it difficult to borrow in the next couple of years. And I think that in that way, it's similar to some of the sovereign debt literature, um, uh, like that AER paper on uh, haircuts that find, uh, like, it's real, it's not zero, it's just, you know, maybe you can go back to market too. And so it's that kind of thing. So actually, this, I, I think I'm going to maybe get ahead of myself with this question, but I'm, I want to follow up on this while we have you talking about it. How do we how should policymakers take that kind of empirical uncertainty into account in balancing the kind of three legs of this trilemma? Because I, I think if anybody asked me in the sovereign debt context, I would tell them, you should really discount fears that by imposing losses on creditors, you're going to 
produce an extended period of capital markets exclusion, or you're going to create some um, long-lasting risk premium. Like none of those things are really going to happen. Uh, it, it sounds like we don't know quite enough to say that in this context, but maybe the same thing is true. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's even more true in some respects because uh, in the municipal, the local government, not states, but local governments, we have something that doesn't exist in the sovereign bank or in the sovereign debt world, which is a bankruptcy regime that makes debt that 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 facilitates um, a type of um, uh, debt restructuring uh, through the through judicial process. It's been long talked about in the international in the sovereign debt world, but we have a pretty good mechanism, or at least a, to my mind, pretty well, well functioning uh, bankruptcy regime, which makes the cost of, which should bring down the cost of default to some extent. The challenge is that when you think about the entity deciding here, it becomes relevant. So there's the individual government trying to default in one way or another, which, uh, but there's also the federal government, which can, um, uh, affect that default decision in certain ways. And so the federal government's interest is both in the welfare of the underlying jurisdiction, because the people who live in a Detroit are also Americans, um, uh, or Puerto Rico, which sometimes is forgotten, but they're Americans. Uh, but, the, um, the, but also, they're worried about the problems that default in one jurisdiction will create for other jurisdictions. Um, and so it's um, it's a uh, uh, problems of contagion. And again, because you don't have a higher level sovereign in the international sovereign, those concerns are uh, dealt with in a kind of in a different way. And so, do I think um, uh, do I think particularly local defaults are um, are like a little too feared in the municipal context? Yes. Um, uh, do I think that? Uh, uh, that is an easy set of advice to give to a higher level. No, um, and do I think there are reasons to be worried about it in the municipal context? Yes, um, because uh, the cost of it going badly are quite large. And so, but the one other thing I'd say about this is that the other parts of this are are similarly, you know, like you could make arguments that the other ones are overrated too. Other problems are overrated too. So um, the economic problem created by local austerity, well. If the Federal Reserve is doing its job or the federal government is doing other types of stimulus, you might imagine we could avoid the recessionary effects created by local uh, local austerity um, without, you know, and so we could we could balance against that. And similarly, the moral hazard concerns, there are people who have big, there's a big debate about like how bad moral hazard is at, in terms of the moral hazard of the federal government subsidizing state and local um state and local spending uh, were created by that. And so there's a big set of debates. Uh, people disagree about how big a concern that actually is. And so across all legs of the trilemma, there are real uh, real substantive debates about how big a problem it is and whether other tools could be used to resolve them. I'm going to ask a question that's just clarification and um, sort of takes us off the very interesting train of uh, uh, discussion, but um, I need I need the clarification, which is uh, in the fascinating historical arc that you draw for us. My understanding, unsophisticated understanding, is that in the early periods, starting with Hamilton taking on the state debts, 
it's the states that we're borrowing. And then gradually over time, by the time we get to the railroads, you have municipalities that are borrowing, but states are also borrowing. And then in the very modern era, states seem to largely drop out of the picture. And then it's primarily cities and these kind of weird creatures that are municipalities, but maybe not like, you know, the University of Virginia sets up some hokey fund. To, I, I, I'm making this up, but something to fund like a basketball stadium or something like that. And that that gets to be counted too. Can yeah, so, so the, it's local government, but I always thought of local government as like as you know a state, and then maybe a little bit, maybe a really big city like New York City. But it seems like there's been an evolution, and so just to clarify, so the going forward in our discussion, we understand what creatures are we really talking about here. Really good, and it's, this is one of those questions that it's really important to get the history. So in the early part of American history, um, uh, there was a big debate about whether the federal government should fund infrastructure or states. And uh, the ends up happening that the states end up funding a lot of infrastructure. And through 18, the 1840s, states play a very large role in funding infrastructure. And this is some things like the Erie Canal is the most famous of these. But after the defaults of the 1840s, states largely state governments largely take themselves out of the infrastructure promotion game um, through debt limits they pass for themselves, not entirely, but largely um, through debt limits they set for themselves, through limits imposed by the market on default the defaulting states. Um, and there's this fascinating moment when uh, Everyone realizes that or thinks that railroads need a huge amount of investment and states have state constitutions have included all of these limitations on borrowing and limitations, particularly on investing in private companies because there are very few civil servants. And so most um, most infrastructure is built through contracts with private servant uh, private companies. Um, and they, but state after these defaults in the 1840s, um, a bunch of states passed constitutional amendments limiting their ability to borrow and limiting their ability to use um, uh, private companies to build infrastructure. And all of these state courts start ruling to, with some question whether they're right or not. It's an interesting question that these rules don't apply to local governments. And it's interesting because local governments are creations of state law. That is to say, they're not mentioned in the Constitution. States are pre-constitutional. That is to say, they sign the Constitution, whereas local governments are purely pure creations of state law. But states, state courts rule, well, we don't want to stop all infrastructure spending. And there's this uncomfortable set of constitutional amendments. And so we're going to, but we're going to allow local governments. And so local governments in the period of the, really most of the 19th century are the main creators of infrastructure. And part of and the one story is that they're funding railroads, and we can talk about that that historical instance later. But also all sorts of other stuff: the Brooklyn Bridge, Central Park, the things that you know um, were funded through uh, lo local government debt. Um, uh, by the the states kind of come back into the picture with the creation of highways. Um, uh, in a big way that when we, the automobile returns, states become a bigger funder of infrastructure and as a resulting have a bigger role in debt. Also, with the coming of the New Deal, they just become much bigger as fiscal entities. For most of the 19th century, local governments are just much bigger as fiscal entities than states or the federal government um, or 
um, they're they're bigger relative to than they are today. And then with as the governments got bigger and there were more intergovernmental transfers, states became a bigger role. And today, states and municipalities both borrow a lot of money. Um, they sometimes borrow much, states sometimes borrow money and conduit it to local governments, but they both borrow a lot of money to build a lot of stuff, highways, right? You know, all sorts of things. Um, um, and uh, so they're all pictures. The weirdo entities you talk about, the weirdest of them is that states frequently, because they face these debt limits, that is to say state constitutional limits and how much they can borrow, often, and local governments face them now too, particularly after some defaults in the 1870s, um, they... Um, um, they create new governments to do borrowing. And so the University of Virginia is a entity that exists for a really long time and everything, but um, governments faced with debt limits will create new entities to do the borrowing to avoid either their debt limits or to avoid putting um, issues to the voters because very frequently debt needs to be approved by um, popular referendum under these constitutional regimes that were created. Um, and so for instance, New York State issues almost all of its debt through authorities, which are separate governments not governed by the debt limits. New York, even though like so New York State get much of its income tax goes to an authority, not directly to fund its general obligations. So I want to shift gears uh, while we can to talk about some of the I think broader recommendations, including uh, increased use maybe of of the bankruptcy system. But before we get there, can I just ask a question about market structure and efficiency here? So one of the the themes that I think plays a a minor role, but I but I still noticed it in the book is that you know, there are some reforms that could be prompted by a somewhat heavier regulatory hand, like requiring better disclosures to investors about state budgeting processes and so forth. And when you talk about those things, my my reaction was like, God, this sounds like a pretty inefficient, poor functioning market if important shit like that is not being disclosed because investors are demanding it. Is that is that an overreaction? Yeah. Uh, is this an efficient-ish yeah. so market? Like it's 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 a weird market. And so one of the things about when you go to conferences involving municipal debt, you expect a big it's a giant, giant sized market. You expect it to be filled with Wall Street sharps, you know, with you know the four thousand dollar suits and everything. Um, but it's not like that. It's a much sleepier group uh, I like them very much, but it is not like um, it is not uh, the same type of population that you see in some other um, financial markets. Um, and uh, the um, the state governments have been an extraordinarily powerful and state and local government have been part of power lobbying force in changing the regulatory rules at, for about securities generally. Um, at they put for municipals. And so there's something called the Tower Amendment that limits the disclosures that states and cities have to make when they issue debt. Um, and uh, the justification for this is that there aren't that many defaults. So why impose a cost uh, a cost on local governments uh, or state and local governments in order to, to issue bonds if they're not going to default anyway? Like what's the investor protection rationale? Um, and I offer some just arguments why I, I think that uh, that those arguments against disclosure are unavailing. But the um, the thing that like why like how does market pressure in this area work? It's a really um, interesting question because um, the the central fact about who owns municipal bonds is caused by a quirk of federal tax law, and so 
quirk is not, I mean, not right, but it's a, a feature of federal tax law, which is the federal tax code exempts interest on municipal bonds, on qualifying municipal bonds from uh, your income taxes. And so as a result of this, only really only tax paying Americans, uh, individuals are likely to hold municipal bonds. And then further beyond this, um, uh, states frequently exempt from their income taxes uh, interest on their own bonds, or um, uh, so we call that double tax exempt. And then uh, if a local government has an income tax, they'll be exempt from that too, and they'll be triple tax exempt. And interestingly enough, for something that you guys have talked about in the past, uh, uh, Puerto Rican bonds are triple tax exempt by law. So that is to say, they're exempt from all state and federal, state and local income taxes everywhere. Um, and this has the effect of creating these kind of pools of money at the state and national level that are like need to buy these bonds because they need to get this tax exempt income. Um, and it may result in a little less um, pressure. It also is the case, and this is an interesting fact that I don't talk, don't talk about in the book, but I had a student write a really, really brilliant paper about uh, not that long ago, which is there's no shorting in the municipal bond market. Um, there are very there are CDSs at weekly trade CDSs on the very biggest on states, but there's no ability to short municipal bonds. Um, and this is uh, partially because of the way in which the tax exemption works um, uh, is a result of the, one of the reasons you see this. But as a result, you might think that price discovery is pretty bad in the municipal market. And you see this when you see you see downgrades of like six grades at once uh, when there is a crisis. And so um, uh, is this market functioning on? Um, uh, it depends what what question you're asking in that regard. Oh, I have so many questions about this, uh, but I want to. So I want to come back to this this completely bizarro tax aspect of this, and uh, the lack of the a CDS market combined with these insurers who seem to perform kind of a CDS function, but in a in a very different way. Uh, but there, there is a third big topic that I, I'd like to ask you about now, and we're running out of time already. It's so sad. Uh, but, and, but that is uh, bankruptcy in this area. So in theory, at least in the early days, early days of the modern debates over uh, sovereign bankruptcy systems when the IMF was thinking around the time of the Argentine default in late 2000 or so. It's about to say which one, right? <laughs> we, yes, <laughs> that, that's exactly right. But around 2000, when there was a big discussion about sovereign bankruptcy schemes, and Ann Kruger was leading the charge to design this. A number of people without any background knowledge of American law, let alone the municipal bond market, read little snippets regarding Chapter 9 and found this to be nirvana. They, they were like, this is the best bankruptcy system in the world. It does everything that we want. And this was seriously considered as a model for sovereign bankruptcy. And if eventually, because the US Treasury decided that bankruptcy systems would be terrible, all of this got thrown out. But reading your book, I realized, I think I realized two things. One, 
chapter nine is incredibly complicated. And essentially, you're always going to end up in litigation because there's so many hurdles that you have to jump through. And there's so little clarity. And second, that in, in practice, very few entities actually seem to use it. And even though that we have a handful of cases and you detail them, the market doesn't seem to be that fond of chapter nine. So did we just completely get it wrong in the sovereign context in terms of thinking, oh, chapter nine is the model we should use? Or is there something very different happening in the muni context with you know the federal uh, bailouts and complicated state politics that cause it not to be used very much? Yeah, so it's a great question. So uh, really quickly, chapter nine was created in the 1930s, but uh, it was then very basically not used at all um, until that was reformed in the 1970s when New York City came close to using it, but didn't. Um, uh, um, and then basically still wasn't very frequently used until the mid 2000s or mid like 2010s when you saw a number of uh, municipal bankruptcies happen. And so one of the funny things about that is there's just not a lot of law there, like how it works, even like some really basic functions of how municipal bankruptcy works were just unknown because there weren't a lot of cases. And you could ask, well, why aren't there a lot of cases? Um, uh, uh, in part, that's because of the fact that state and local governments, state, federal and state governments offered aid to avoid defaults, but in part, in order to make it constitutional in the federal system, um, uh, it, this Congress included a requirement that states authorize local governments. So states can't file for bankruptcy, but states have to directly authorize local governments to file for bankruptcy. Um, and then in the 1980s, following a really fascinating and weird uh, default crisis in Bridgeport, Connecticut, um, the Congress reformed the language to say it had to be specifically authorized. The state has to pass a specific law. It can't go through your home rule powers or anything that says this jurisdiction can file for bankruptcy. And states have been extremely reticent to do so. Um, and the ordinary story we tell about why they've been reticent to do so is that they are worried that a default in one city in their jurisdiction will result in uh, diff more greater difficulty borrowing for other jurisdictions in there, the problem we call contagion. Um, and so the fact of state authorization has limited um, a number of filings. Now, is it a good model for for the sovereign market? It's again, a good question. One thing is that, so it's really interesting about municipal bankruptcy, is that like kind of formally it's built on the bones of business bankruptcy. But Sovereign bankruptcy, including state and local state lo local bankruptcy, is um, completely intellectually separate from the question of like what a business goes bankrupt because it's not like the creditors can take over and become the voters or residents of a jurisdiction, um, and uh, uh, nor is it the case that you can sell a, a jurisdiction off for parts um, in the same way. Um, and so the um, the uh, like you need a different mechanism. And so I do think all things being equal, the IMF was up and I, I'm somewhat sympathetic. My wife is a former official of the IMF, brilliant woman, a very, very official. And she, she uh, taught me to be, have a deep respect for IMF policy papers. Um, uh, and I think that they are in some ways on the right 
track in the sense that it is a reasonable place to look and probably the most reasonable place to look for an example of a sovereign bankruptcy system in the world. Um, that's not that's not to say that it, like it's fully worked out. And there's some real um, deep theoretical conceptual questions that remain inside sovereign bank inside municipal bankruptcy. Um, that may or may not apply in sovereign bankruptcy. I'm not sure, um, but it, it's not like we've figured it all out or we know how it works. Um, but um, you know, I you know, like one question you can ask is like, did the uh, application of uh, municipal bankruptcy to Detroit work pretty well, all things considered? And like my take is yes, all things considered. Um, now, did it work pretty well in Puerto Rico? I think that's a, a, a harder question. Did it? Is, did it work well because of kind of core attributes of bankruptcy or did it work well because the judge, I don't know how to put this, ignored core attributes of bankruptcy? I'm thinking about like the debates over whether to sell off the Detroit Art Museum collection yeah. and things. I, 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 I'm trying to figure out whether bankruptcy kind of stumbled its way to a decent outcome or whether there's something about bankruptcy that produced it. Yeah. So I think in the Detroit context, it was something about bankruptcy. And so in the Detroit context, um, as you note, the Detroit held a bunch of assets, a bunch of Van Goghs, basically, um, that it could have used to satisfy its creditors. But one core feature of municipal bankruptcy is that the court, and this is very different from uh, corporate bankruptcy, the court can't order a jurisdiction to raise taxes, stop spending, or uh, sell assets. And the reason for this is that the federal government of, of whom a bankruptcy court is an official, um, is uh, unable to order, and it's understood to be part of the constitutional protections on, written into bankruptcy, to order jurisdictions to really do anything. And so what is it that bankruptcy was doing in the bankruptcy in the Detroit context that was attractive? Basically, it was a, it created a mechanism, it creates a mechanism and some oversight for um, a uh, for private negotiations um, between creditors and municipalities outside of the context where you have in the sovereign world, you at least have some tools for doing so, Paris and London clubs, that kind of thing. Whereas in the municipal context, no such thing exists because again, it's a little rarer and it's a little weirder. Um, uh, and it created a mechanism for these, for negotiations to happen. Um, it also um, provides a mechanism for what we call cram down, that is to say, a, a, a requirement that uh, usually small sets of holdout creditors have to take whatever the city is, offers if the court determines that it is fair. Um, and that happened with respect to uh, a small class of bonds um, in the Detroit context. Finally, it, um, it achieves something else that's a little more ephemeral and a little more political, um, but I think is actually really important to understanding how municipal bankruptcy works and why uh, I'm just kind of soft on David Skeel's proposal to extend it to states, which is in the Detroit context, the kind of mean event in the Detroit story is that once bankruptcy was filed, um, a bunch of private institutions, uh, the Ford Foundation, a bunch of other foundations offered to give Detroit a lot of money to help their pensioners in return for the art in the Detroit Art Museum being not sold. And so like remove that from the issue. And then the state government offered uh, to match that private money in the Detroit bankruptcy. And 
the question has always Detroit was always like, why isn't the state helping it more? And the state's answer was always Detroit is terribly run. And so if we help them, they're just going to waste the money. Um, we don't even know that they're really that bad off. Maybe they're tricking us, that kind of thing. And obviously, there's a political and in the case of any, a racial valence to some of these uh, questions. Um, but the fact that a court as part of the bankruptcy determination ruled that Detroit was in fact insolvent, not lying, not mismanaging, but just flat broke, gave justification for entities that would never under any other circumstances have offered aid to the city to come in and offer aid. Um, and it also allows the state to distinguish between the truly worst off things, uh, governments, and those who are merely, you know, no, no, every jurisdiction would prefer to have more money, um, and may because the court is determining uh, insolvency, and again, that's a very contested question how it does so, but because it's, the court says you're insolvent and therefore you're eligible for bankruptcy, it uh, creates some distinction between your Detroit's and your Lansing's or Flint's or whatever um, in the eyes of the market such that they may not, it may reduce contagion. And so the those are all features of bankruptcy that worked quite well in the Detroit context. Um, uh, and I think in some of the other municipal bankruptcies of the of the of the early 2000s, um, and so that are features of bankruptcy. How well they all correlate to the international sovereign context, I'm not sure. So, David, um, we are we are unfortunately running out of time, and Liana will be very displeased with us if we go over time too much, and we're going to go over time a little bit. But I want to ask you about. What is to me a, a truly bizarre aspect of the American local government bond market, which is the tax subsidy aspect. And, and as you said uh, earlier in the podcast, and as you say in the book, and you have a really nice chapter about this uh, right at the end, this this tax benefit slash subsidy that is given to local inhabitants ensures that the holders of the bonds are local. And you you don't you don't you actually say that there there might be some positive aspects to this because then you know there there is reduced contagion, but to me, having a lot of holders from other places, and this is probably because I only work on restructuring, having holders from a lot of other places is often good because then the pain is suffered by people in other places and not by my local inhabitants. And it's, it's sort of a diversification function. Mm -hmm. And in the sovereign context, and I know you know this, in the sovereign context, and particularly in the European crisis that we recently lived through, it was a big problem that governments had in effect forced their local banks to hold giant amounts of their debt. And that this is what economists uh, who study uh, the international debt context call the bank sovereign doom loop. It <laughs> seems like in Illinois and places like that, we have sort of a, a local voter, local government doom loop that, that that's going to hit us hard 
very soon. So are, are, do we need to worry about it? Or I mean, oh. this seems like a recipe for disaster, not, not a benefit. So it is a very oh oh I have yeah. to throw this in because Mark is gonna make 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 us stop um, after he gets the last word. But and then on top of this, there's there seems to be buried in here a subsidy for rich people. I mean, why? Like, the, okay, I'm I'm befuddled. Oh, oh, it's it's a great question, and it is notably, by the way, also uh, something that we've had policy experimentation and a fight over in recent years. So just so we're clear, the federal government wants state and local governments to borrow money to build stuff. And there, I can explain in the book why that's the case. But the question is, like, how do you do it? You could imagine doing it in a lot of different ways. And in 2008, the Obama administration, or 2009, rather, um, the Obama administration um, pushed something called Build America Bonds, which rather than giving a tax exemption to uh, on the interest of earned by municipal bonds, which, as you note, is really good for rich people. Um, and if it's not really good for rich people, it's worse for governments. And so I can get into that in a second. But it is a uh, uh, they what they did was they offered what were called the Build America bonds, which offered uh, just a direct subsidy for every borrowing. So the, the interest on the ta- on the on the on municipal, on municipal debt was uh, was taxable, but the federal the, each state and local government that issued qualifying bonds got a big load of cash equal to the amount of the they would have gotten due to being able to borrow at lower interest rates due to the tax exemption. And the whole justification for this was exactly as you say, it was to diversify the borrowers that this allowed in. You know, German pension funds or something to uh, buy municipal bonds when municipal bonds were suffering a a real problem in the right, there was like a, there was a, a, a crisis in in you know, the financial crisis and so there was a real crisis in these and this broadened the base of purchasers and was really attractive to this and it was also in by by along some ways a little more of an efficient um, system and so like why do it the way we do it um, and. I think the answer, you have to ask two questions. One is like, should we be subsidizing state and local borrowing at all? And then would the Build America bonds system uh, be a more attractive one? And by the way, during our last crisis, like there's a big debate about whether to include Build America bonds in the infrastructure bill. Um, there's a big fight over uh, the, the Biden infrastructure bill. Um, and a variety of people who kind of play in both these spaces um, uh, were advocating for doing something like build America bonds or something in order to broaden the base of investors along exactly the domain you uh, dimension you talk about. So um, should we subsidize state and local debt? Well, the answer we usually give is yes. And the reason people, even both sides of this debate say is because Congress can't really build infrastructure. And so um, the disrupted nature of Congress results in, for all of American history, we've given state and local governments the 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 job of doing most investments, but but we want to subsidize them because maybe they have difficulty raising um, the taxes to do so. Um, now, is the exemption good? Well, the I just my take on this is the exemption has benefits and costs, and they're exactly along the domain dimensions you you suggest, which is that it's uh, the costs are. Uh, that it uh, that it concentrates the investor base, which means that it, the borrowing costs are higher on some respects, but also that in a crisis you can't export the harm. Um, the um, the federal government's interest here, though, um, that kind of makes this a little more complicated. But the justifications for the exemption are that it. Uh, reduces contagion, as you note. When the idea here is that it um, that if there's a default in Detroit. Um, will it affect borrowing in Boston? Um, uh, well, if or uh, um, if the investors are German, 
they might view uh, the entire U.S. municipal market as kind of one thing. And you see this, this the, the the line drawn, this is to like a very much sovereign debt example, like the tequila crisis and the, you know, and, and the variety of things that happen where you see these like big shutoffs happening um, where investors are like, I don't know, it's foreign, I'm against it. Um, uh, um, and uh, you might imagine that having these state national specific and state specific uh, markets reduce that contagion risk. Um, there's also an argument that gets made that the exemption is quite good for another purpose, which is a little, um, uh, again, like doesn't translate super well to the sovereign context, which is that uh, it is for very small places, it is often they face um, some degree of uh, market power among lenders. That is to say, most people don't know anything about a 10,000 person jurisdiction. Um, and so the lender in the absence of uh, some kind of direct federal aid or uh, the tax exemption is extremely likely to be a, the local bank um, or alternately a few local rich guys. Um, and uh, there's uh, some really good empirical evidence that the market thickening effect uh, that uh, um, uh, the, and the kind of weird structure of the municipal bond market takes uh, particularly enables small jurisdictions to borrow in ways they might not be able to in other contexts. And so there's some empirical evidence that supports that. But I think the answer, my answer to you is like, um, it has some benefits. It has some costs that you note. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a really tough question. So I lay out the tentative case for the municipal bond exemption, um, but it's very tentative um, in that there are real advantages to doing um, things like through a structure like Build America Bonds for broadening the investor base. Um, I could go on, but uh, that's the, that's like the structure of the way I think about it. And then you can, the the last, well, I want to say one more thing, um, because I've heard you on this podcast um, uh, uh, make fun of your con law colleagues before, um, and I want to endorse that making fun of. Um, and one of the things that focusing on this type of question does for you is it highlights the degree to which federalism is in fact a policy choice, not a kind of constitutionally granted, so um, a constitutional thing that normally when we talk about federalism or localism, we talk about it in the terms of the restrictions the higher level government puts on the lower level government. But when you start thinking about the interest exemption and or the Build America bond structure, what you realize is that so much of the freedom of states, and in this case, it's very important to the freedom of small local governments, um, uh, is driven by the fact of federal subsidy. And when you look at the money rather than the parchment, you see the degree to which our, the way in which we understand the uh, devolution of power in the United States is a is it as frequently a choice of Congress as it is something handed down in the, um, in the constitution or the Federalist Papers or something. Well, David, I wish we could keep you here. There's a, so much in the book that I would like to ask you if we had more time, but um, I'm looking forward to when it comes out. I appreciate the chance to read it a bit early, but uh, I think it comes out in a couple of weeks and maybe- yeah, um, a little more than that, but but soon, um, soon, like yeah, a couple of weeks, like a month or so, but yeah. A month or so, okay, great. Well, um, uh, really excited to, that it'll be coming out and I hope that we can persuade you to come back and talk to us again when the world blows up and both Illinois and Chicago default at the same time. Yeah, that's the, the interesting thing. Is, um, the, my joke with my the the some of the people who work on the publication of it is that like it, this has put me in an extremely weird situation that you guys know well, which is that you know I'm not rooting for defaults, but I'm not. You know, <laughs> <laughs> they might be good for book sales. So uh, we'll see. 
You're not not rooting for him. <laughs> like, 